0: Because I think there's a deep ideological split here that actually is quite dangerous too. And that traces back to a philosopher named Anne Rand and people who follow her brand of the view of the world. And the view is essentially that markets work. If everybody is free, markets work. You enforce contracts and you make sure there's no fraud. And there's some other important constraints then that's the best world. The worst world is whenever the government comes in and starts to try to solve a problem or do something else. That's become a very big split between those who think the government should not be doing anything and it's about liberty and freedom and everything will just work out as long as the government gets the hell out of the way. And then others, and I'm in this camp, who say, wait, you can't throw out government like this because big collective problems like climate or like the COVID crisis cannot be solved by just letting it rip. If you just let the market deal with the COVID crisis, we are literally gonna have 2 million people dead and you don't have to have that. Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values.
1: We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. Eric Orts hasn't officially declared he's running for Senate, but he plans to decide soon. A mutual friend emailed me that a colleague, that is Eric, was considering running for Senate next cycle and wanted insight into sustainability and stewardship. As it turns out, he's running in Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up and spent almost 18 years of my life. He's a professor at Penn. That's where I started my PhD. We spoke and we hit it off and I invited him to be on the podcast. If he runs and becomes a senator, you heard it here first. Now, choosing to enter politics to me today sounds like an easy way to turn your life upside down. So why would a tenured faculty member at an Ivy League school consider it? It turns out he felt a calling, starting as far back as 1992, accelerating since shortly before Trump was elected and undeniably in the past year. He shares the source of this calling both why he's acting and what he was doing to act on the calling instead of running all his time. He shares the problems with politics from the view of someone diving into it, the money, the personal tax, the advantages of incumbents, and so on. He also shares what he brings, a background in law and business that apply to politics. I heard him as, despite everything, confident that we can change, plus enthusiastic about sharing his environmental values and acting on them in the challenge and sharing them next time. Here's Eric. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Eric Orts. Eric, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing great. Thanks very much for asking and uh, very happy to meet you in person here and uh, to have this conversation.
1: Now, I'm going to start with what I think what drew us together was a mutual friend said that you are considering running for Senate. Now, it's we're in the middle of a, of a let's say, heated election right now. So you're talking about a future run. And first, is that a hard decision I guess it is a hard decision because you haven't quite made it yet. And then also, I'm very curious, are you a tenured professor?
0: Yeah, I'm a tenured professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, and I've been there almost for 30 years, so it was my first teaching job. Now, this sounds like a very comfortable, stable job. Running for
1: office today doesn't sound that way. So can you tell me about what are you running for briefly? But really, I'd love to learn what gets you to jump into public service.
0: Well, I guess to start with, I should clarify that really this is a preliminary phase that we're in where what you have to do in American politics is really explore whether it makes any sense. So that's where we are right now is this summer I had the... uh, I had the ability because I'm an academic and uh, because I follow the rules, I check what the rules are, et cetera. But in the summer, we have significantly more flexibility in terms of our time to look into other endeavors. And so this past summer, I spent a lot of time looking at that. So we have a website up, et cetera. But it's important to emphasize this is just an exploratory phase where we're testing the waters as to whether it makes any sense at all. And to answer your question, it is, a, it is very uncertain. And one of the things that I've learned from the process, and it's, a, it's an unhappy fact, is that the American political system is significantly broken, as many people have pointed out, in the sense that you need a hell of a lot of money to think about running for any federal office. So if you're looking at running for Congress, whether in the House or in my case in the Senate, it's a huge amount of money that people have to come up with. And so that's one of the challenges. I think you also have seen exceptions to the rule where the general rule is that our system is dominated by very big amounts of money being spent by very rich people who are usually associated with some sort of a corporation or a financial entity or something like that. That system's significantly broken, but You do see a lot of people coming up who are challenging that. So Bernie Sanders and his campaign, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her campaign, but a lot of progressives have been able to really pretty much come from not a lot. Now, Bernie Sanders is an exception because he was in politics his whole life. But you have more and more examples. I just had a call from someone in Texas, for example, and she is running for office and was homeless for most of her life. Was on the school local school board, but is not from a lot of means. So it is possible to create a broad based movement. But you know, you don't know whether a broad based movement is going to develop, and these people don't uh, didn't know either until you try. So that's really the um, place that we're now in. Is that yeah? There's a lot of uncertainty. Probably it's more likely that it would fail than to succeed. But as uh, my minister just preached about, I'm a a Unitarian and I go to the First Unitarian Church of Philadelphia. I think she just preached a uh, a sermon on how it's a really important thing to fail or to try things. And then if you succeed, you succeed, but you're not going to succeed unless you try. And you're not going to succeed unless you probably fail many times. So this could well be something where it's going to be a failure but it will be, I think in your terms and kind of looking at some of your podcasts, a joyful failure, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's something to look at. It's extremely important. I feel called to look at this. I feel driven. I feel qualified. I talk to my family and friends and others and I get a lot of support and they say, yeah, you, you should go for it. So even though it's very hard, even though it's difficult, you never know. And the big news we just had actually this week is that one reason it looked very unlikely that I could succeed in this endeavor is that uh, the current occupant of the seat, Senator Pat Toomey, just decided last week that he was done. So you had a career politician, very powerful in Pennsylvania. I don't think he's lost. He has not lost an election in five rounds at the state level. And he was a second term Senator, so he'd been in the Senate for 12 years, and in the U.S. system, there's a huge power of the incumbency. So he has a lot of political capital that he's built up for 12 years. He suddenly said, and I saw the uh, webcast, and it was very understandable. He has a uh, family, he has three kids. He's uh, realizing that there's more to life than just oh, continuing. every politician,
1: whenever they leave, any politician or CEO always says. Family reasons, because then it's like, okay, I can't.
0: You're right about that. And the truth is, I think that's another reason to be feeling optimistic. Not even, it's not just about me. It's about what, an issue that we both care about passionately, which is our environment. And I think that the bottom line is that he probably sees that the tide is turning and that an entire party, whatever you think of other issues, that denies the science of climate The climate is a problem, that just says, no, it's not, let's just burn all the fossil fuel up that we currently have, is the party of the past. So my guess is uh, there's a lot of forces within the Republican Party uh, that are younger and that are conservative, but also are progressive on the environment and at least see that climate is a real issue and we have to deal with it. So I think I think you're right. He probably sees the writing on the wall. I think he's one of the most unpopular politicians on social media. For example, uh-huh. I follow, I've, I've been following him on Twitter and uh, Facebook, and it, every time he posts something, it's almost almost all the comments are negative. So you can also see that he probably doesn't really see a path to winning again. Everything you said so far makes a lot of sense, and it's all to me
1: the playing field, the situation. Now, I want to switch to you jumping into that fray sounds like a difficult decision, although maybe it's an easy decision because of your background. I mean, that what you described is, is the case for everyone, but not everyone is, is even considering running. Can you tell me about your background? How far back does it go? Is it just recently or is it from the past? Personally, what's, where does this calling come from?
0: Well, it goes back pretty far. So I, I grew up in a small town in southeastern Ohio near the Ohio River. And uh, from a young age, I was always extremely interested in politics. And in, in fact, even though I'm, I've been a business school professor, I'm a lawyer by training. And my early studies were in political science. I was a political theory major with a minor in philosophy at Oberlin College. And then I, was, uh, I did a master's in political science before I switched over into law. So I had always had a thought of maybe I would go into politics. So even even when I went to law school, I thought, well, being a lawyer is a good idea if you want to be a politician because you have a job if you lose, right? You have to plan for – in some ways, you have to plan for your failures in life. And it's helpful if you have some security because not everybody – can run for office, especially when you talk about all the money that you have to uh, raise and things like that. So unfortunately, one of the defaults we have is that there are way too many billionaires who are in the Senate, right? <laughs> you, know, you almost have to be a billionaire even to afford the television commercials these days. But going back to your question, I've always had a, a passion for it. I think there were a couple uh, points for me where it really changed where I really said, okay, should I come and try to be a part of this solution, this part of the solution? I've been working as an academic. I've enjoyed teaching for many years. I enjoy writing. And there were a couple of key moments. So one moment was when Donald Trump was elected president and two colleagues and I wrote a blog in 2015, a year when when Trump was just coming up. And we said, Trump isn't really running for president. He's running for what uh, we call a classical tyrant. He has all the characteristics. And one of my friends was uh, another, a political theorist. I was in the business school and and another friend was in classics. And so we said, you know, he's really the kind of person that's going to be tyrannical. He doesn't care about democracy. He is caring only about himself, et cetera. And everything we said, we have a new piece uh, that we're trying to get placed now that shows Everything we said was true, and his behavior models that. And so at that point, I became really afraid, and I had happened to write a, uh, I wrote a thesis when I was only an undergraduate in at Oberlin College. I don't think it was a very publish, good or publishable thesis, but uh, it was called The Threat of Modern Tyranny, and it looked at, can it happen here? Can the transition from a democracy to a totalitarian government or a tyrannical modern tyranny in Nazi Germany, for example, or in, in uh, Mussolini's Italy, could that sort of movement happen here? And I wrote that. That was, I graduated in 1982. And at that time, you know, there wasn't really any present threat of that happening. And then suddenly I turn around and in 2015, this guy is coming up. He destroys the Republican Party with the, with the charismatic appeal and the populism. It seems to be a general threat in the world that we have uh, the rise of autocracies and the decline of democracies. And I just got scared, really, and started thinking, okay, what can I do? And I I threw myself into politics that year. We're going door to door to try to stop uh, stop it. Uh, Pennsylvania lost. We lost Pennsylvania by 44,000 votes. It was an extremely close election. But it was right then that I said, okay, I have to really be uh, political in some sense. And then the other thing, and you might appreciate this too, is uh, I think I, I, that year, we my my wife and I go on a retreat every New Year's. Now, partly it's to avoid my friend's part, my neighbor's party, who always has a lot, <laughs> partly to tell you the truth, it's to avoid having a bad New Year's day by going to a party and maybe drinking too much because your friends are drinking too much the night before. So we've, we've for uh, many years now had a tradition of going away. We're just planning one now to go away this year and find a house where we just uh, get away from everything. Maybe a family member comes or whatever, but we usually just go to a a retreat of some kind. And we had gone to a retreat and there were uh, exercises that people would walk you through. And I remember that year we had an exercise. We're just reflecting on the year coming. And the question was, if you could do something now and you knew that you could not fail, what would you do? And I thought that was a really interesting question because going back to the the earlier point, I think many people don't take enough risks. You know, many people, I think you, you, that's a theme in some of the podcasts of yours that I've seen. You know, you have to take risks, see, see how something goes. And the immediate thought came to my mind in answering that question was, well, if I knew I could not fail, which is a big if in terms of running for office as a rookie, I would run against Pat Toomey, who had just won um, uh, the Senate, also by a somewhat larger margin, and I'd win. That's what I'd do. So it came into my head. I shared it with the crowd. The crowd started clapping, saying, yeah, so you should do it. Go for it. A little girl about 12 years old came up to me afterwards and said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run for president. I said, yeah, you should go go for that. So
1: I love all that clapping is like all these people who are like thinking, oh, I should run. And then they hear you and they're like, "Ah, you run instead, and you live out my." Well, that could be. But you it take the really risk. Nice.
0: These, these people are all total strangers. It wasn't part of anything. So, so then that's a little bit more reinforcing too, because you have an idea. Well, should I do it? Think about it. Maybe I'd be okay. And then you talk with friends. They say, I, yeah, I think you should do it." And you know, have friends, and they say, "What's the maximum I, contri- I can contribute?" And I said, "Well, twenty eight hundred dollars." And it's like, so then it starts. uh, It starts going and. Uh, And that's where we are at this moment is kind of just testing how it's going. You said two things. One was tyranny. I think the other was environment. I mean, that's, that's what we talked about before. Yeah, environment. There are two things. So I think it's one is democracy and preserving our democracy. And that is what this election coming up right now is about. If we do not elect Biden instead of Trump, and it's not whether you like Biden very much. I happen to like Biden, but it's really a binary choice. This guy is completely out of control, and he has the media and big money behind him in a way that is extremely dangerous. And even the people supporting him, I think, don't know how dangerous it is. They don't have a sense of history that you can think you're controlling somebody, but if they are the president of the United States, you do not control them. So I don't care how much money you have or how close to the tyrant you are. You do not have control, and it's an extremely dangerous situation, and that's why you see military people, foreign policy people, former Republicans, the Lincoln Project, all these people trying to stop the tyranny that's rising. So that's the first thing. Second thing, though, is I have a a abiding passion of the environment, and we are in a climate emergency. So right now, everyone's talking, of course, about the COVID emergency, and we we are in an emergency that's similar, and I've written about this, where... COVID and the climate are very similar because they're both about science. They're both about whether you listen to the scientists. The Scientists are saying we are in a climate emergency. That means we have to do something about the climate emergency. And then there are lots of people, policy people, who are look, listening to the science saying, here's what we're going to do about it. COVID, same thing. Scientists and the medical establishment telling, here's what we here's the problem. Here's what we can do to solve the problem. But then you have to have the political will to solve the problem. And to tell you the truth, uh, it's really surprising to me when this COVID-19 first came that we didn't really see that immediately. But anyway, to get back, and, and I think they're really related. Both, both are problems of our environment. You know, a virus is a, natural, <laughs> is a natural thing, and the climate is the same thing. I agree. I
1: really want to get to your personal view. Yeah. Everyone knows this about the environment. No, I mean, I think they do. Mm-hmm. If they listen to the science, they do. Yeah. They're looking at it. And seeing what you're seeing, you're looking at it, you're seeing what you're seeing, but you're doing something different than what most people do. And I take it that that means that's touching on something in your past or touching on something that way, how you look at things.
0: Yeah, I have a deep love of the environment that goes way back. So I was in scouting. I was an Eagle Scout. My parents took me to the great national parks when I was a kid. We would all climb into a, a Chevy station wagon and, you know, go out and drive across the country to have uh, family vacations. And so I have a, I have a deeply embedded sense of uh, the importance of the environment. I went to a formative experience for me professionally was that I went to the Earth Summit in 1992 in Rio de Janeiro. And it was a great, it was one of my favorite applications for funding for a research trip because I called up someone at the Wharton School who who has now passed away and he was the head of a center. And I said, hey, you know, someone suggests I should go down to Rio and, and study this. It's related to business. There's a big business forum connected with the international forum. And he said, okay, um, I'll consider sending you down there. How much money you need? And I said it was several thousand bucks or whatever it was for the plane trip and the and whatever. And he said, "Okay, the you have to apply for that." And I said, "How do you do that?" And he said, "Meet me outside my office in five minutes." <laughs> so, basically, I made the pitch. He said, "Okay, you're approved." But anyway, at that moment, going down there, that was a moment where uh, George H. W. Bush was president at the time. I think the most uh, state the most leaders of the world's government convened in Rio and they all said climate is a huge problem. Biodiversity is a significant problem. The United States signed on to the uh, framework agreement to try to start to address the climate problem. And there was also a huge forum, uh, really for the first time in a very large sense of businesses and NGOs and civil society, other, other elements of civil society, And it was there that I really saw, and I saw other business people. I was teaching at a business school. I just started teaching at Wharton a year or two ago before this. And they were passionate and said, you know, we get it too. We have to be part of the solution too. Everyone has to be part of the solution. This can't be just, let's give it to the government, or let's, especially, let's give it to an international body, which has not been very successful in solving other problems, and let's stay out. Even then, you started to see a turn of businesses also getting involved, NGOs getting involved. And that's when I really started to get involved, too. So that was kind of a a key moment then was that I saw business had to be part of the solution. What I see now in terms of answering your question is after being in this field for, I don't know, about 20 years, I guess, since then, 15, 20 years, and studying climate, studying business, how can business be more active? It's clear to me now that we have the solutions to solve this. We can technologically solve the climate emergency. We have business models that can address this. We can stop the bad businesses, the carbon majors, the, fossil, the big fossil fuel companies and the, and the cement companies. We can stop them. And we can have a transition, but I've come to realize it has to be politics. It has to be you have to get involved in politics and individuals have to get involved in politics. But as important, one of my big messages is businesses that care about the environment also have to get involved in politics. You can't just sit on the sidelines and say, those fossil fuel companies are really evil. If they're being really evil, you better do something on the other side. You have to get involved. And so I think that's one of the ways I see the politics of our world changing is that you see solar prices coming down. You see wind prices coming down. It's the cheapest kind of energy out there, really. It's just that the systems are not set up to take advantage of that. But my message to those companies is, okay, you better get involved and get the right people in office. Now, that if I run, that would include me, of course, and that'd be a pitch to those companies. It's like, you got to get get involved you can't just sit this out and it, you can't just say business will solve it because business won't solve it if you have the fossil fuel business is influencing the political process you have to have a counter reaction to that and i've come become convinced it has to be a a political counter reaction and it has to be one that's pro business because people have to have jobs there's been a lot of solutions to the climate problem that are not acceptable because they ask people to pay a zillion dollars for their gasoline, and they're just trying to make ends meet, right? That's why you had a huge strike. So you have to have policies that are meeting the needs of people, giving them jobs, having businesses, many small businesses, but also larger businesses that will have a vibrant economy. As you said, a joyful, maybe, you know, you, to use your terms, a joyful economy. And one that's sustainable. There's no reason. We can do it. It's just a lack of will, a lack of collective will that's holding us back.
1: So it seems like you have a, your particular background of law, of active, somewhat activist, business, not activist so much as passion. That says mm-hmm. why you would act. Now, the Trump part, I can see why you would want to act now, it begs the question of between 92 and 2016, why not act?
0: Well, that's a good question. Maybe maybe I could have. I think at that point, I was uh, part of a movement that was trying to, and I think has succeeded to some extent, convinced, uh, devoted to convincing businesses about how they can change. And this is something that's not well appreciated, I think, by many people. So if you ask a lot of people, what does the Wharton School stand for? Probably people remember Trump went there, it's finance, all that. But in fact, as for as long as I've been there, there have been colleagues who have been working very deeply and in an engaged way on how businesses can be solving problems of this kind. Uh, One course that I've just started now, and it's a a new option of a required course for MBAs at Wharton, is called Business, Social Responsibility, and the Environment. And the premise of the course, I just say, okay, this is an optional course. So if you want to take the regular business responsibility course, I teach that to next semester. If you want to take this course, this course assumes that business is not just about making as much money as possible. That's one of the models that we have out there. It's probably the dominant model. And what I have spent a lot of my career doing is fighting that model. So as a theorist, as uh, I've written a book called Business Persons, where I basically say, look, businesses are not, you know, the idea of shareholder wealth maximization is not a natural law that you discover, right? This is just a principle of convenience that we use. And that it might help on some modeling of problems and such, but it's not written in stone, right? So if the purposes change, and I think businesses have always been about something else. Business, businesses are human institutions, which have various kinds of purposes. Yeah, one of them is profit-making. We have that because it's a useful way to organize our society. But the idea that it's only about profit making, and that's like whoever makes the most money wins, or these sort of what I consider crazy models of success are are just not necessary. They're wrong, and it becomes excessive. There are reasons why many religions. Say I don't want to get too much into agreed. The... Et okay. Go ahead. Sorry.
1: I don't want to get too much into the book. Why not act all that time? I think a lot of people are struggling themselves with wanting to act and not acting. So I'm really curious. What I heard was that you you had resolve as of 1992, uh, but didn't act in all that time. And it sounds like part of it was you were hoping and through your professional work as a professor, hoping that some students would get the message and start doing things to get businesses to change. But that force was that inertia was too great.
0: Well, no, I I guess I'd give myself a little more credit than that, because I think, in fact, what the Earth Summit kicked off for me was a real commitment to get involved. So for the last 12 years, I just wound this down last summer, in part to free myself up to maybe do uh, some other things like politics. I was leading something called the Initiative for Global Environmental Leadership. And we had basically, over the course of that period, raised about $4 million, which you know, it's not a lot in terms of centers in, uh, in my my universe. You know, we, I remember having a meeting with a hedge fund guy at one point where the president and the dean were there and we were asking for 20 million and that would have been a huge, big boost. And then you could have a research center where you're really devoting things to, devoting resources to new research, new teaching initiatives, et cetera. So in that time, I really believed in transforming the business school and transforming our our models of business. And I did a lot of work on that. So I was leader of that initiative for about 12 years. We had a bunch of reports that were business-related environmental reports. We had curriculum change. I, I created a new course called Environmental Management and Law which now one of my a new colleague who just got tenured is a junior colleague to me, but she's just gotten tenured. She's teaching the course. Great. I don't teach that course anymore. There's another colleague who's joined the faculty who does environmental economics. They have a new lab, which has taken on climate and the environment and business. They've taken over a lot of the stuff I started on, on the initiative for global environmental leadership. So I think the way I see it at least is I was very active, but on uh, focusing on, uh, the changing the business school, changing the kind of options that we have for students. And one other thing I'll say is that even then in 1992, et cetera, there were a lot of students who were interested. There weren't as many, I think, as there are today. And that's one of the really very encouraging signs I see out there is for this new class, for example, on business, social responsibility and environment. I think if I had tried to give that class as a core class in 1992, it wouldn't have really attracted that many students. They would have said, "No, we're here to we're here to make money. We're we're here. We're not here to think about these other broader issues." And so, I think now, though, both of the sections I'm teaching this quarter are oversubscribed. There's a huge amount of energy behind these topics. The students are. I'm learning huge amounts from the students just from what, you know, I just converted to oat milk, for example, (laughs) the students were giving, you would have liked that presentation, maybe I'll send you the slides about the changes in sustainability in the food industry. So my sense there is that there is a, this movement is going forward, but I am now switching to a different perspective and saying that the politics are now really what I see as the impediment. We have the business models and we have a lot of students who are ready to do this stuff, but our political system is stopping them right now, Stop is stopping the movement. So I heard that uh, a couple things
1: strike me. One is that you were acting, you were doing some things on a, I think you're, you're taking up to a whole other level. So from the perspective of, of being a senator, what you're doing was on a modest scale. I mean, Warren is obviously a huge global brand, but
0: compared to the U.S. Senate is, is small, I would think. Well, I don't know. I, I really don't see it that way. In, my, in some ways, it's smaller. Like if you think about okay, we'll just give you one example though. Now I don't know where they're going, but like if you ch- if you're a huge company like Walmart and you suddenly say our supply chain's going to be sustainable and some really verifiable, that's a question now. But a really good way they could have a bigger impact than the U.S. Senate, like being a U.S. senator.
1: I didn't mean to compare that your role as a senator versus your role as a professor. Yeah, is it's a much bigger risk on your personal level because when I. I mean, I teach leadership. I got a lot of great students. And for a long time, I would tell myself, I'm going to teach leadership. I'm going to get a community of of leaders who know how to act and know what to do. And I'll be a part of that community and we will figure things out. And when I look back after I started acting, doing like such as this podcast, Mm -hmm. I look back at that and realized that I was really trying, I was hoping that others would act. And I thought, oh, I'll do my part to get others to act. Yeah. And only when one, when I started choosing to act on my own. Because when I, when I started this podcast, I thought you know, the goal is not a podcast. That was what I could do right away because it, yeah. you get a microphone and a webpage, you can start a podcast. And my goal is leadership. My goal is to change culture. My goal is to change the values that the dominant values of our culture from you know growth to enjoying what you have, from efficiency to resilience and things like that, from comfort and convenience to meaning and purpose. Yeah. Now, let's say I succeed. I mean, and my thought at the beginning was, to be the Mandela of the environment. There's no leaders in this area. There's managers, I would say, but not leaders. So let's say I succeed. Let's say I become the Mandela of the environment. Who talks like that? I feel like that's crazy talk. Like who has the gumption? Yeah, that's,
0: that's a pretty ambitious goal. I just came, I was in South Africa a couple of years ago. Mandela is just such a huge hero, but I like the goal.
1: So for me, to, and of course it's not to do exactly what Mandela did because the environment is not apartheid. It's a very, I shouldn't say our environmental issues are not the are not apartheid, but you know, suitably translated. But mm-hmm. for me to say that, it felt to me I'm opening myself up to ridicule. I'm making myself very vulnerable. I could easily fail, but let's say I don't fail. Mm-hmm. First of all, if I fail, people will be will I have a life of people saying, This guy, listen, look at this guy. He thought, oh, I'm gonna be Mandela, right? That's not so great. Let's say I succeed. If I succeed, presumably I'm gonna have the weight of, or the 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 value of the assets of fossil fuel industries coming after me, right? I see what the Koch brothers do. I yeah. saw what happened. I saw what GM did with- um, Nader? Nader, yeah, Ralph Nader. Yeah. And I see what happens to people. They get chewed yeah. up and spit out. And- It's true. So if I fail, I lose. If I succeed, it's brutal. And most of all, I felt, I don't think I can do it. I really, if I really look inside, I think, I would like to be able to do that. I would like to have done those things. Yeah. But on a personal level, I had to face fear. And it's not just like fear in an abstract sense. Like it's it's like
0: keep me up at night fear and yep. ridicule. Well, I think it's a really good analysis. It's a really good example in the following sense. I think you're right. I mean, I think when you are going up against entrenched interests, that are going to lose a lot of money if you're successful and they don't want to change. They don't care whether how many people are getting hurt. They don't care if a lot of people are going to die. They are. They have their own entrenched interests to preserve. And you're right. When you become, and I think Mandela is a good example, he became powerful. What did they do? They put him in jail on Robbins Island. I visited there a couple of years ago. It was a very powerful experience for me too. So I think we kind of share in that imaginative example of of bravery, of bravery in the face of something that you have to find. And uh, I think you're right that it's a characteristic of leadership now, and it's also true in politics. So that's one of the things that I have faced. And when I was in Africa, actually, I was was thinking about politics to some extent and starting to think about this. And I looked at Mandela as an example. It's like, you know, what's the worst thing that's gonna happen to me? I'd fail, but also, as you're saying, If I, by chance and by luck and by good fortune or whatever, won the primary, and probably it would start even in the primary, in the Democratic primary, what in our current political system do you get as a reward if you're running for a major political office that would have a lot of effect on something like climate and other and our democracy and our structure of democracy? You would get massive millions of dollars spent against you. And how would it be spent? It would be spent finding something to personally attack you with making things up, making up lies. And it's a big reason why a lot of people don't go into politics, because I think you're right. You know, in order to take this risk, you have to risk your reputation and you have to be ready to do that. But I think I think you're right to look at history like Mandela and others to say, you know, things don't change unless someone stands up and says, you know what, this is wrong. And right now, even if you look at Trump, if you look at authoritarian regimes, it's the same thing. What happens if Trump has no, what happens if he actually can start to shoot people in the middle of Fifth Avenue or order someone else to kill someone else? We are not that far away from that. And that's why I'm so passionate about that. But you know what? If you start to stand up and say that, look at, you know, another hero of mine right now is Navalny in Russia. The United States has still not said anything about Putin almost certainly having tried to kill his leading Opponent in Russia with a nerve agent, like they even traced it to the um, Russian intelligence, right? And we don't say anything. What happens if that starts happening here? Then you are really in an exact parallel to what Mandela and others were facing. So I think you're right. You know, we really should be cognizant of what of the many people who died heroically in wars and et cetera. I quite liked Biden's talk at at Gettysburg yesterday, for example. When we are deciding what we're going to do today and we have to take these risks. So, yes, go ahead and be like Mandela, Josh. That's my advice.
1: I'm curious the interplay between Trump and the two things that you've mentioned of, of the risk of dissent into tyranny and the environment. If Biden wins in November, are you more likely or less likely run to the set for Senate? I don't know if that's too, if maybe you'd have to figure that out.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I, I would say more. I mean, it's hard for me to, I think we have to start to think about what happens if we fail in November and we have Trump for another four years. I think I would much rather be, and I'm thinking now as, a, as someone who would want to be running in a post-Biden world, and my, my vision there would be, I'd probably be wanting to push the envelope faster on the climate. Than even, I think Biden has a relatively ambitious strategy also, but I have a feeling he's going to run into resistance. And so I would want to try to kind of accelerate that. So I would much rather be in that situation and then in a situation of trying to run against a president who I think would be going to, into an authoritarian cycle. But I would hope somebody would do it. And maybe I would be the one to do it. I think a lot of people would be afraid to run for the Senate against Trump when he starts to become more and more authoritarian. And as I said, I do not think we are that far from a world where he may start to call on his loyal followers to actually commit violence against opponents. I mean, you already see a little bit of that at rallies or people driving into protests, et cetera, but I'm talking about a more targeted kind of violence that we see in other authoritarian regimes. And uh, that would be harder. That would be a much harder situation to make a choice of putting oneself at risk. But I do feel like we have to start to stand up against white supremacy and extremist, extremist factions that are growing up in the United States, which are not above using violence. I mean, they're actually talking about civil war. They're talking about killing people. We have terrorist incidents, such as in Pittsburgh, where people are motivated politically to try to Attack people and kill people. So we have that here already in the United States, and we have to, we have to start to stand up and oppose that.
1: You described earlier as the system being broken. If you you have to have billions, you described Trump as destroying the, the Republican Party. Do the billionaires think that the system is broken themselves, or do they think it's working well? Does the Republican Party think that they're broken? Because it's very easy to think I'm right. It's not. Th- people don't think I'm right and they're wrong. I think they usually think it's not that I'm, I'm right. It's just, this is the way things are. And yeah. mm-hmm. I always have to be very careful. I try to be careful. If I feel, look, you're just not hearing me. If you just listen to me, then you'll understand how wrong you are. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel that way when I'm in fights with like girlfriends and people I care about. And so if I hear myself feeling that, if I sense feeling that way, I'm like, oh, Josh, better be careful because they probably feel the same way. And so, if someone else thinks that if I say, if I were to say the system's broken, and the other side is white supremacist, and they're just wrong, it feels like that pattern. They probably don't think they're wrong. And if I think that they're wrong, then then I have to beat them, and then we end up back. We end up in this a polarized situation, with both parties saying, like, you just have to understand me, and then when you understand me, you'll come over to my side.
0: You raise a good question. I think that there's a lot of hope in this where if you talk to a lot of billionaires, I remember Colin Powell had a comment about this when he was, he's a Republican, of course, and he was coming over and saying, we really need to support Biden here because this is really severe. And he was saying he talks to people, he's a Republican in in circles of rich people, right? Billionaires. And he was saying, you know, you really have to stop looking at this as just your own interest. Because if you're only a rich person who only cares about your own interest, and that's somehow, some, a lot of rich people get that way because they're only thinking about their own self-interest and that's what they're focused on, then it, Trump has been very good in some ways for them because the Trump and Republican Party backing him have passed an extremely generous tax law that has given a huge windfall to the very rich. And the problem then is, though, and I think it's—I uh, think people are open to this argument, even if you're very rich. And there are a lot of billionaires on the other side. You know, Bill Gates is looking at the coronavirus in a much different way. And you have George Soros who's in favor of democracy. You have Jeff Bezos who has uh, have purchased the Washington Post and is in favor of democracy. I think there's some hope for the leaders of Twitter and Facebook too. And I think other other billionaires, though are going to wake up. And I think start, there's a lot of money actually flowing into the Biden campaign. And I think a lot of it's coming from them, uh, from people who realize that this really isn't the right direction to go. We need to support the other side.
1: When I hear someone on the left talking about Koch brothers or Koch brother, mm-hmm. and I hear someone on the on the right talking about Soros, yeah, there seems to be something similar there. Yeah. I don't think that you described it's a big windfall for the rich, but mm-hmm. I don't think that they're saying – in their hearts, they don't think that they feel like, let's get some money for ourselves. Because I heard Milton Friedman talking, and he's saying We're, it's all about liberty and freedom. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I just saw John Mackey talking about liberty and freedom, and it's not a zero-sum game. And So from their side, they're not saying, let's just get yeah. ourselves rich. And they look at the billionaires that they disagree with, and they say they'll come around to liberty and freedom.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you raised this, because I think there's a deep ideological split here. That, that actually is quite dangerous, too, and that traces back to a philosopher named Anne Rand and people who follow her brand of the view, view of the world. And the view is essentially that, and some economists uh, tend into this view, the view essentially is that markets work. If everybody is free, markets work, you enforce contracts, and you make sure there's no fraud, okay, and there's some other important constraints, then that's the best world. And the worst world is whenever the government comes in and starts to try to solve a problem or do something else. And so there's really a big, I think there have, that's become a very big split between those who think the government should not be doing anything and it's about liberty and freedom and everything will just work out as long as the government gets the hell out of the way. And then others, and I'm in this camp, who say, wait, you can't throw out government like this because... Big collective interest, collective problems like climate, the climate challenge, or like the COVID crisis cannot be solved by just letting it rip. If you just let the market deal with the COVID crisis, we are literally going to have 2 million people dead, and you don't have to have that. Do you say million or billion people dead? Uh, two, Well, two in the United States, I think the oh. estimates are 2 to 2.5 million people dead, only in the United States and we are really kind of trending toward that right we're not trending down we're not looking like we're we're getting away from this problem we're we're already projected i think for another 200,000 dead if we don't do anything in terms of social distancing using masks all this stuff that the scientists tell us by the end of the year so these are huge numbers of people dying and the and the problem is you're just you have someone in the white house who doesn't really believe that government should be solving the problem <laughs> And so if you have a problem, like you're being invaded by another country, and your view is, well, let's let the market take care of it, you're going to lose, <laughs> right? So markets don't work that way. So, so I think we have to, that is one of the ideological divides, though, that I think you're talking about, that divides someone you know, on the liberty, freedom, and the other side.
1: I'm trying to think from a leadership perspective. If I say you're wrong, if I say to someone who is against masks, yeah, look, it's a matter of life and death. Mm-hmm. And they're thinking, no, it's a matter of if I give up this freedom, then I'm going to give up another freedom. It's not going to end until you are telling me what to do. And and they see the end as some Stalinist regime. Yeah. And so if I say it's a matter of life and death, they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what you say. Of course, that's what you say. You don't understand where I'm coming from. And if you don't understand where I'm coming from, I don't want to, I'm not going to listen to you. Yeah. So when I hear someone say, you know, the system's broken, but- Those billionaires have to come around to what our billionaires are saying. Yeah. Then I'm like, all right, you just want to win. That's what it sounds like if I put myself in the shoe, because I have friends who are staunch, staunch Trump supporters and they see Mm -hmm. what's going on every day. They see more reasons why Trump is a great, great leader. And to say to them, you're supporting a tyrant, a wannabe tyrant. Okay. It seems to me to set up a, a pattern of, well, then you want to win. I want to win. And every war begins with everyone saying, I will not start the war. Of course, I will not start, but I will defend if necessary. And so it just feels like, I don't know if it's possible to, if if the polarization is so great that people can't see the other side, but to use a language that says they're wrong. But once they get it, they'll come around to see that they were like, of course they want to save lives. They just haven't kind of figured it out yet. And they're saying, of course I want to save lives. That's not the question but you want to take away all my freedom. yeah? And, th- and they're thinking, you want to take away my freedom. And we're not saying, of course, we understand there's some loss of freedom, but that's not the goal is to take away freedom. It's We don't like that either.
0: Yeah. No, you're absolutely right in, char- in your characterization of how the arguments go these days. And it's unfortunately, you know, on both sides to some extent, but I think particularly on the right, it gets, uh, you know, people are getting the the Fox News feed, the Rush Limbaugh feed, the, you know, Sinclair's controlled uh, local news feed. And so it's very difficult to break into these kinds of rhetoric. I agree with you, too. The left can also get on the same way. The Democrats and Republicans are both getting more and more polarized and social media is contributing that because everybody can tune into their favorite news and you don't have uh, and I think Obama has had a pretty good analysis of this. Although, as soon as you say Obama, you know, you're right. Yeah. The other side will just turn. Oh, so if Obama says it, it must be wrong. But let's just say, let's forget Obama said it and just say, I think we do need to start to look at. Do you agree about certain facts? So on climate, for example, I'm like you, I have, I interact with people of different political stripes. But one thing I now do is I'll, if I'm at a, i will if i am at I was recently in the pre-COVID times, I was at a, a cocktail hour and it was uh, after a, um, after a big event at Penn and it was a fairly high rolling uh, political guy, was slightly to the right. And then, but I start off the is like, well, can we agree if we're talking about climate, do we agree that science is an agreeable starting point? And if you're basically talking to somebody and they say, "No, I don't agree with that. Science is just relative," then that not much. You really cannot have a useful conversation. And I, at this point, like if you're really not even, gonna, you can debate the science. Okay, you want to debate some science? Let's talk about the science. Let's get the scientists together. But on certain things, there's not really a lot of debate. If you ask all of the people, uh, the scientists and the medical doctors about who are who know about the topic, who are infectious disease experts. They are studying and now giving us advice about mask wearing and social distancing, et cetera. So if I'm having a conversation with someone, I say, "Let's talk about what we should do with respect to our personal behavior in light of COVID-19." And I say, "Can we agree about the science and where we should find the authoritative advice about how does the virus work, how does it get transmitted, how do we stop it from being transmitted?" If someone says, "No, I don't want to talk about the science." Or they just say, I like this scientist who I saw on the website who has no (laughs) correct. You know, then you really are at a stopping point. I think where you can't really talk with someone, same kind of thing about race. You know, you have to start in my opinion with science and the science is very clear and universal that there's no such thing as race. So the race is constructed in in a political and social way. People get inculcated into it. They get miseducated. And if you don't agree, like if you, so if you ask someone, will you believe there's a scientific basis for racism? And they say, yes, then you're at an ending point, right? Because you can say, okay, well, let's talk about the science. But if you actually don't even want to talk to me about what the science says about this made up concept called race and how it's been used to oppress people, put them in slavery, discriminate against people, et cetera. Then we really don't have a lot of talk about. And I think you then do have to it goes into a power struggle. And then when it's in a power struggle, I think we have to try to agree on democratic rules of engagement, because I think you're very right. If we disagree with that, we, we really aren't far from war because politics is set up so that we can have disagreements about things, but then we can vote and then we can discuss and we have a system by which our disagreements get worked out and if people really are and there's and the far right is there right there's the white supremacists neo nazis are active in the united states and they are actually trying to push us into a civil war and i think there at least we should talk to our friends and people and say do you want war or do you want peace because that's what this uh, that's partly what this election's going to be about do you want a president who says those who are asking asking for civil war and for racial unrest and for this kind of extreme violence, you have to say no to that. So hopefully we will say no and in in when it comes to uh, the vote in November. So I would think you would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that reasonable people that
1: you disagree with ought to disavow the people who vote with them, but might push for violence.
0: I'm not sure what you're saying there. Yeah, I think you know, the, violence is a big topic, right? So it's not that we're saying you should never have organized violence to defend the country, right? So there, there's, a, there's a general sense, but this, that's how deep we really are in this time right now. And that's why I think it was appropriate for Joe Biden to talk, uh, to give a speech yesterday at Gettysburg, where we similarly had a very big divide in this country about two issues— And there for a long time, they tried to work out the whites who were represented, of course, in Congress, tried to work out these compromises about slavery. But at the end of the day, there was really no compromise and you had to have there was a war over the topic. And we are again in a time where race is again a lot of the component of this. Like now we also have climate. We have we have a lot of other issues, too. But I think the most volatile and frightening aspect of it is race where you have some people saying, well, you know, there's violent, there are protests, most, almost all the protests against police brutality and police killings going to George Floyd and many others were completely peaceful. But you have another side saying, no, they're violent. They're burning down the cities. I mean, I live in Philadelphia. Yes, there were some, there were some violence in Philadelphia, But it wasn't like the city's burning down. It's, you know, everyone's living in in peace for the most part. And all of the protests I've seen here have generally, well, some of them have degenerated into a few incidents. But then those are blown up as if there is a complete lack of law and order, et cetera. So you really do have these competing narratives about the violence in the country coming up. And I am afraid uh, about how that's being used. So I'm not sure how, you know, so your question about violence really does bring up some deep and disturbing perspectives about where we are right now.
1: Yeah, I appreciate your sharing so openly. For me, this is, it's my journey in this direction is not going towards Senate, but the internal personal part is very personal. And, you know, one thing that I think that I'm glad to hear from you that I don't hear from a lot of places is this personal, I think we need to know who our leaders are and, not just what their positions are, but where they came from, because I want to know when the chips are down. Where is my leader going to support me? Is my leader going to defend me? And if I just think that they're, if I don't know where they're coming from, I have to question that. And I, I appreciate your sharing where you're coming from. And I hope I didn't ask too many probing questions.
0: No, no, I think it was. A, oh, I, I like probing questions. That's okay. the, that's the best kind. I, mean, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what we. That's the kind of questions we should have about. Leadership selection, et cetera, is open questions where you're really trying to explore these issues rather than, you know, the kind of gotcha debates that we have or that kind of thing. We really need to have more engagement on this kind of level in terms of how we're thinking about, I think, all kinds of issues, right? Not just political issues, but how you live your life, how you decide who to be friends with or not friends with, or how you select to, to be involved in all kinds of things in life, who you buy stuff from, you know, what your entertainment stuff tastes are. So I think this is really good, uh, good kind of conversation.
1: I'm glad you shared it. And and I look forward to hearing how your campaign, should it happen, evolves. And it's really also gratifying to hear that it's kind of interesting when I, I thought you were, when I asked if Trump gets elected or depending if, if Biden gets elected, will you be more likely or less likely? And at first I thought you'd be less likely because Trump played such a big role or the authoritarianism or the tyranny that you see played such a big role. But then the flip side is you on the environment, you could be pushing the envelope.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's where I'd like to be.
1: You wouldn't try any less. It's just this way you'd be, what is it? It's like, you know, instead swimming faster downstream, instead of swimming upstream,
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, the the scary thing is, A, you might lose your democracy, which is the most immediate problem if Trump got reelected. But B, you'd continue on this path of not doing anything on climate. I mean, I don't know how much people need. I mean, if you believed in a God that was intervening in the world, you might think that if you're doing nothing on climate and God was upset about it, he would burn the West (laughs) he would have wildfires sparked by thousands of lightning bolts burning the West, which is what we have. Unprecedented hurricanes hitting us from the south. I guess another one is about to hit Louisiana, and you'd have flooding of uh, historic proportions in the Midwest. So, I don't, you know, you kind of sit back and wonder how. What do you need of like in, before your own eyes to watch the news and see the world burning and and uh, having clear indications of climate catastrophe before we move. So yeah, I'd rather be in a position where we're pushing that envelope forward and we're moving faster. The other thing is even uh, if Biden wins, and I very much hope he wins, I'm working for him to win. I think we need to reform our democracy. We cannot have just money calling all the shots. There has to be some more public financing uh, measures so that everyday people have more of a say in their government. We have to protect voting rights, which are are being suppressed everywhere right now. Kind of shockingly, we're the country that stands for democracy in the world. And we, we have all these games being played to try to gerrymander people and to try to suppress the vote. We need to have a rep- more representative Senate is another uh, reform that I have in mind. So I'd really much rather being, uh, be pushing the progressive progressive envelope than to be defending our country. But uh, yeah, if Trump won, I would think about running. To, and the primary objective would be to stop him and to stop him from destroying our democracy.
1: And if he didn't win, then you, it would be to advance, I mean, bring business to bear. All the stuff you talked about, what you've been working on for the past couple of decades, uh, to bring that to a higher level, to bring that to the to the Senate level.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you yeah you'd still you'd still have to try to continue to try to get uh, protections for people. You try to get ready for eventual change. I mean, even if Trump won again, I don't think there's a you know I think he would try to he would try to create a a tyranny where he would have to have, stand for election against. Uh, so that I think that that would be possible. He said it himself that maybe it would be a good idea if we'd have a lifetime appointment although he could, you know, who knows what the course of COVID will be with him, at least you'd have only four more years. And there's two terms for a president, and then that's it. So you eventually can get around to it. My real concern with that on the climate side, though, is we don't have four years to spend. We actually didn't have four years to not do anything in the last four years. So another four years, and we're already in climate catastrophe, another four years of doing nothing, and you really are throwing yourself uh, into a, a world, a world uh, where it 's going to be very difficult, if not impossible, to turn anything around but the other one other message of hope there is the younger generation. If you look at what the sunrise movement is becoming very politically sophisticated, the younger generation is seeing the the threat to them, and they are getting organized and they're, uh, We just saw in Massachusetts, for example. Even though Kennedy was running and you would think, oh, Kennedy, everybody would jump to Kennedy and and vote for him. In fact, the Sunrise Movement got behind Senator Markey, who was an incumbent, who was this old guy, but he was a co-sponsor of the Green New Deal, and he won by 55% of the vote. So it shows, I think, the sophistication of of the younger generation. They're getting serious about politics and they care about guns common sense gun control and gun regulation. They care about the climate. They care about jobs. They care about getting affordable college education. And I, I really have a lot of hope in the in the next generation that's coming up right now.
1: I'm going to throw a couple of personal notes. When you said, what more does it take? I mean, like, what do people need to have happen to see this climate catastrophe? And something that, that we're not going to see it, that model This is something I've, I've been working with this and the model suggests that we're going to change when we see the problems. And only when I started learning about William Wilberforce and Tom Clarkson Mm -hmm. and John Newton, people who were abolitionists in England in the late 1700s, early 1800s, very far from the slavery. They were in England and could have, they were never going to feel the pain. They weren't, their children weren't, no one that they knew would ever feel the pain. They could easily buy into the rhetoric that you know they want to leave africa it's better for them there they're happy there. The empire depends on it. if we don't do it, then then the French will and it's the french uh, the dutch and the and the spanish will and Wilberforce didn't need to feel the pain himself; he saw that what he was participating in a system that contributed to the suffering, and that for me, i would like I hope that we switch to that model because if we have to wait for. Powerful Americans to change for them to feel the pain themselves, it's never going to happen. Yeah. Not for them. However, if they look, or, you know, the other big example would be Oscar Schindler. He could have been just fine running his factory and he didn't have to save anyone. Yeah. And these, how can we find in ourselves what they found in themselves? Because Wibbler Force was successful. I mean, actually, he, for 20 years, almost every year, he would put forth a bill to outlaw the slave trade on the way to outlawing slavery. Mm-hmm. in the British empire. And he tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried, never gave up. That's amazing. On the From a leadership perspective, that's what I want to get into us. Now, from, a, yep. from a, a management and success perspective, what made this vote switch was that the public switched. And only when the public switched did the vote in the House of Commons switch. And so you need the leaders, the people in Senate and so forth, I believe, and the public as well has to act. And- yep. That motive, but also the model of if you're going to have to wait until you feel the pain, if we say, look, you're going to feel pain, you're going to feel pain, you're going to feel pain. People are like, well, I don't feel it yet, but after it happens, then I'll do it. Then Wilberforce never would have gotten anywhere, and maybe England would have had a civil war too. We had to wait till we felt the pain, and we had a civil war. I'm grossly simplifying things.
0: Yeah, I think I think you're right. I mean, obviously, we had uh, a different situation where where the UK did not have slavery as an institution within its own country. But you're right that that was part of the global abolition movement, and that I think it's also important to have that kind of historical perspective that success can come this way. Right. I, right now, we have most of Europe really is very progressive on the climate issue now. So you kind of have a similar uh, setup. To what you're uh, suggesting in abolition, and if you you also have a lot of people in the U.S. also who were behind the abolition movement, uh, civil war. The roots of the civil war originally came here too, when you had leaders like uh, William Lloyd Garrison and and others who were white moralists, and a lot of this came from religious uh, a religious understanding, including my own Unitarians. A lot of them were. Uh, like including Theodore Parker, who was the original person who said the moral arc of the universe goes toward justice. But you know, I mean, there's a uh, who a lot of people have repeated since then. But you're right; those that kind of leadership of abolitionists was required also in the United States case. And then. You had a lot of voices like uh, Mary Ellen Watkins Harper, who was in Philadelphia, another strong voice for uh, both abolition and also women's suffrage, another movement that we can look at very positively that it was stopped for many years. There were many hurdles, but eventually uh, we accomplished women's suffrage. You had Frederick Douglass. Etc. But I think you're right, and this we can bring this all the way up to the present. Look at the protests that were around the country after the George Floyd incident, the killing of George Floyd. It was multi-dimensional, right? It was not just black protesters; it was white protesters. It was. All different kinds of ages. Okay, some people might not have participated because they were worried about COVID 19. They were, they had uh, who were older, but it was a massive multicultural, multiracial demonstration that we want to have change with respect to systemic racism in the United States. And I think that that's going to probably help to translate into victory for a different side in November, that it's not okay to be. Condoning white supremacy, it's not okay to be having these kinds of policies, which are essentially racist policies. It's not okay not to have review of police departments. It's not okay to let voting be be suppressed in a way that's racially and politically tinged. So, I think that we are in a. Uh, you're right to look at that historical example, but I think we can bring that all the way up to the present. We can do it today. It's not just the historical example; it's the different. If we look at the issue with the climate as you
1: are going to suffer, then a lot of people are not going to suffer. And they'll say, Oh, I see. Yeah. Whereas and Wilberforce was never was not going to suffer. Yeah. Nor was not yeah. going to suffer. Yep. And yet they were some of the most effective people in all of history. Yeah. And so how can we get people to stop thinking, well, I'll act when I suffer? Because you're telling me I'm going to suffer? But that then Wilberforce would never have gotten started.
0: Yeah, I I see what you're saying and I think part of that is to really look at it as a moral. I think what what motivated them, you know, the Wilberforce case better than I do, but my my guess is it was it was a moral passion. And I and I think that's what we need to bring into the climate issue and I think you see that. Like the look look at the you know per, perhaps the the most influential leader is Greta Thunberg, right? And she but she brings to the climate issue, I think, this moral imperative that we must do this. This is now, I think partly that's why it's a youth led initiative right now, is that the powers in the youth initiative because they actually are experiencing this and they see what their lives will be like in 30, 40 years, whereas you or I will be gone in, you know, 30, 40 years, maybe it may be a little longer. But they see that this is really gonna hit them. But also, I think that, that for us, it's a moral imperative. It's like, do you care about your children? Do you care about your grandchildren and what kind of life they will have? You're very good about suggesting we all think about what's your experience with the environment? How, how beautiful is that? How important is that to you? Don't you want to give that to your children and to your grandchildren? Don't you want them to have that? I think that kind of line allows uh, leaders of the movement to bring a moral punch because you need that, you know, otherwise, why does a business says, why should I change? Well, a co- you know, I, I would say, well, you have to change because it's a climate imperative. It's not just about making money and letting someone else worry about it. You have to do something about it.
1: If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful whether you start big or small, doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodick.com slash donate. <laughs> Well, let's switch over to that part because I, I talked to you about it before. What does the, oh, and, and so, so let know, when we started this recording, before we hit record, I said, we'll finish by 10. So it's 10.20 now. We're like way over,
0: but you had said- I can do a little bit
1: more. And yeah. I, I'm
0: enjoying the conversation. That's fine.
1: Yeah, I am I've been indulging myself. You can
0: cut and paste whatever you, you can cut whatever you want. <laughs> I, I give you freedom. I've been
1: valuing so much your sharing that I've indulged in keeping it going. And I, I, I sense, I think that's what you were just saying as well. When you think about the environment when you when you act on it, what do you think about? Of course, you think about children and things like that, but everyone thinks about that but what you know, what
0: comes to mind well that 's a good question i mean i 've been living it so long now since I, I really did I think you know went, we went over some of my own roots in the issue and why I care so much i mean one one thing I haven't shared, I'll bring back to you, is that I, in our pre-COVID times, uh, two summers ago in 2019, I had a wonderful trip with my son, and it was a father and son trip into the Boundary wild Waters in Kettleco Provincial Park in Canada, and we uh, basically had 10 days where we went out into total wilderness, and we were all—it was only us. We had some big challenges, actually. We hit a heat wave that we weren't expecting. And so there were actually even, we had uh, had to deal with heat stroke and some issues like that. But um, there were amazing experiences where, where there was a sudden rain that came down with such force. And it was just me and my son under a tarp with our stuff. And you just experienced the power of nature, the power of how we are so small. Human beings are so small and vulnerable in the face of the natural world, of the power of the natural world. And I think that's what we're lacking right now in dealing with problems. If we, we're, we're not humble enough about COVID-19, this is a virus. It does not care about uh, our ethics, it doesn't care about our politics or anything else. It's a virus and it is attacking us. And we have to defend ourselves against that. And we have to be use all our tools, including our scientific knowledge to defend ourselves. Same thing with climate. Nature is not going to fool around. Mother Earth does not care if we exist, even right. So that you know that I, I guess that's a the personal. Uh, maybe I'm getting too metaphysical about it, but that's kind of what I think about when you say, "Well, why is it personal to you?" Is it, I think there's a perspective that I that that I feel that I comes from my personal experiences about the power of nature and the beauty of nature. But it's also it's also uh, doesn't fool around. So you you talked about this experience with your son.
1: Decades after you'd already started acting, I'm really curious, at the beginning, you, you talked about these experiences as, as a child that mm-hmm. moved you in that direction. And so by the time you had this experience with your son, it feels like that amplified something that was already there. And the, yeah. the choice to go out the nature was probably because of something that was there long before
0: yeah, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of other ones. I remember one time, I don't know if, I'm sure you've seen the big trees out in California, and I think anybody who's in America should go out to see the sequoias and the redwoods. And and I one, I have experienced there where I, just when you are with another being on the planet that is so much older than you, it is likely to be along here a long time after you're dead. And for me, uh, there have been experiences I've had alone in relationship to that Entity and, and and kind of experiencing it fully, where I have a similar feeling of awe and and how we are so small. We're powerful. We could destroy these trees, right? Many of them got destroyed recently, but comparatively, we are we are relatively small. Another event uh, happened at Tintagel, which is a place that had been rumored to be King Arthur's castle. I think that's false, but it's a ruin of a castle in Cornwall. I remember I was a student, I was on some kind of a trip when I was very young, and I remember I st- stood on a cliff on Tintagel, and there was a wind, a very strong sea wind coming in, and you knew the sea wind would not stop. It was an unstoppable natural force, and I could lean out into over the cliff into the wind, and the wind would keep holding me up, and it, would just, it was something you could just trust the natural world. It was not going to, the wind was not going to suddenly stop. They'll let you fall. And so there are experiences like that that I think I've had that give me a very close sense about the importance of our natural world and the importance that we take care of it, that we don't take it for granted, that we learn about it, that it's extremely complex. It's extremely complex, and we need science to try to understand it and to try to take care of it, because now human beings are extraordinarily powerful. I got to stop you before... You're very like, and then this is what we should do. And yeah. was there a before and
1: after? It sounds like with the trees, that sense of awe, maybe that was the first time he felt that sense of awe.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, I mentioned that I went, I had the benefit of going uh, on trips a lot with my family to the national parks, etc. There was one, one example just comes to mind when you asked the question, when uh, I grew up on a farm, my dad was a veterinarian. And he also had what he called the back 40, which was really back four. (laughs) We had a five acre uh, plot and it was out in the, it was a small town out in Ohio. And he had, and there were 80 apple trees on the property and we cared about, we cared with them a little bit. There was one time when my dad got really sick, he had pericarditis and we were afraid it could have been life-threatening. We were a little bit afraid it was a heart attack and, and we were, it was a very small, we had four kids and. And it would have been a big disaster. Uh, my dad was the main breadwinner as a veterinarian. If he had, if he had died, and he was in the hospital, they didn't know exactly what it was. And my brother and I were finding something to give him. And the thing we saw, there was one. Uh, there was a kind of apple tree that we only had one kind. It Was called a Wilson Red Juice tree, a very rare tree. At least I think I think at that time, it was the only one on our property at the time. And there was this beautiful, almost perfect apple that was pretty far up in the tree. And my brother and I, about the same age, made this big effort to try to get like the apple picker all the way up to get this perfect apple, which we then brought into my dad. And there was something about that moment that also gave me a feeling of, uh, you know, it's not a miracle or anything. It's just an appreciation of like a gift from nature. that's like a, this suddenly almost perfect apple. That's an eating apple that you we were able to get. Give it to my mom and say, "Give this to dad, and 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 let's let's hope he gets better." So that's that came into my mind. I think so. I think that this appreciation really goes back to my childhood, where my father believed in science. He was actually uh, a teacher of epidemiology and other stuff, as well as being a vet, and he uh, raised us on a you know sort of a small farm. We had a cow once and so things like that. So I think growing up in that environment gives you a better sense, too, of the importance of the natural environment. And I had a lot of, you know, you have experience as a kid that my son did not have. That's one thing I, one reason I wanted to go on this trip with him is that he grew up as a city kid in Philadelphia. <laughs> I said, you know, we haven't been on a trip like this. I feel like a failure as a dad if I don't get you out there. So it was really nice to get him out there and to experience nature in the way that we did. I'm hearing a, a, a confluence of several things. So
1: I sense that there's a, an, an appreciation, you call it, and an awe that nature brings it. It's
0: it's really hard to get otherwise, if, yeah. if at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a religious kind of thing almost. I mean, it factors into my Unitarian faith. I think there is, for me personally, I'm not saying everyone has to feel this. I think everyone should appreciate science because that's kind of our, our collective thing. But for me personally... There is a religious aspect to this, a feeling of awe, a feeling of uh, where we are in the universe uh, and, and what we're doing with our lives. Our lives are very quick, and they're quickly over. And what are you going to do with your one precious life, as, as uh, Mary Oliver says? And I hear that
1: nature is our access to all of this. this I'm going to leave it as ineffable, because
0: I'm not going to try to put a
1: label on it. Yeah. But it's what you said. And then there's the family element of how it brings you closer to your son It brought you closer to your father, to your mother, to your brother. And there's also, if I hear right, a potential sense of loss or missing it, that a current generation, it was your responsibility to bring your son to it because he might not get it otherwise, and
0: it's disappearing. Yeah, I think we can reconnect, but I think that is an important project. And it's a challenge, I think, with with our electronic world, right? that we, everyone's playing games. I think they're, you know, I, I have fun. I play games with my son too, right? I play computer games with my son. and But you can spend a huge amount of time in the computer and chatting with people, always on your phone, and you can forget the basis of it all, right? You can forget. And, and we, I can imagine that we're almost going to have a reconnecting with things. I, I see this around Philadelphia too. I, I, one of the... But before one, you get into that, I want to... Yeah, yeah, go ahead.
1: I sense it. Part of your running for Senate would be to restore some of that, to, to have that come back to us. I'm, I'm not sure. That's me speculating. I don't, I don't want to put words in your no, mouth. I,
0: I think that you, know, we, you solve the emergency, but I think the way, I think you're right about the policy thing you can get involved about. Let's solve the climate emergency. But how you really get to this is that you make it personal and that people have to care. People have to start to care about where their food comes from. They have to care about whether there's pollution or there's not pollution. They have to care about how they're living their lives, and, and this is something I think you do very well in your other in the, some of the podcasts I've seen, and and your. Uh, and your TED talks uh, is to really connect with the, the world. And I think once you that that's part of the solution, right? You don't you can't just fix the climate problem in some kind of mechanical way that the economists recommend. You also have to have a a movement of people who really care about the environment. And that's what's gonna drive solutions. I'm glad you said that because I'm I now invite you
1: at your option to think of something you can do to act on these things, the family, the awe, the 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 ineffable. With a couple of constraints that it, it has to be something you do yourself, not get others to do that it has some physical component that, it, you know, it's not just reading or raising awareness and something new that's something that you're not already doing. And, um, most people can't think of something right away, but we go back and forth a bit. And then if you do accept
0: the invitation then to share what that experience was like afterward, yeah, I don't know what comes to mind immediately. So, it never comes to mind um, immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I think there are there are things that we've done in our house. So we have solar panels. We're one of the first houses that have solar panels and we had a we have a rain garden. We have we have compost to reduce our garbage as much as possible. It's pretty significantly reduced. Uh as I know, I know you also are a big fan of that kind of thing. So I don't know if anything comes to mind particularly except that, I think Maybe, to, um, maybe this doesn't count for you would be to be a little more clear and, and build out the personal aspect of the potential campaign. It's, just, it's exploring the idea of the personal environmental aspect to it, right? Not just policy, but that this is really something that would be looking to reconnect people to a personal relationship to the natural world and that that's why you care. It's not just about policies and what your what your issue state your statement says.
1: Yeah, that sounds very interesting, is something to do, but this would be something that you personally do that it's not about a message you give to others. I, by all means do that
0: yeah, so one thing that one thing I'm thinking about is kind of following your example. I, I think it's easier now, but we personally I think we need to move toward, and I'm doing this myself of like not taking getting on an airplane, so that's that's something to try to do. I think you're answering a slightly different question.
1: I should have said this. Almost Sorry. everyone hears a different invitation than what I ask. Okay. Most people, when I say I'm, what I'm asking, is to do something based on your feelings. Almost everyone hears. Right. What's the most important thing you could do, or what's the biggest thing you could do, or what does the New York Times or Greenpeace say you should do? And this is not about should. This is about your sense of those feelings: the apple, the the trees, the your son.
0: I guess my feelings are probably to maybe uh, maybe reach out to uh, to my son again and say, well, we're in a constrained time now, but maybe we can do something else. You know, like maybe you can come back to Thanksgiving, but maybe around that we plan a hike out into nature. So there's a, you know, beautiful Ricketts Glen was another great experience that we had once, but that we could go, you know, sort of make make time for more hiking around take my dog on more walks to Wissahickon and maybe to get back into more experiences myself. Since I'm so busy, there's a, you know, I have teaching, I have this idea of of politics, I have the Biden campaign, you know, I have all this other stuff, but maybe make time just to do more hiking and more walks with my dog in, in natural settings that To give myself a sense of that, of that support and feeling that we were talking about. So I think that might be a little closer to what you're looking for.
1: Yeah, it hits on the personal, it hits on you doing things. It it would be, if the trip with the sun were not doing something that would pollute, and instead you're doing something that doesn't pollute, then there'd be, that would get the physical component of a difference. Mm -hmm. For example, what you're saying sounds a lot like Vincent Stanley, a previous guest on this podcast who's uh, he's mm-hmm. been with Patagonia since 1973.
0: I love, I love Vincent Stanley. I'm going, to be on a, actually, I'm going to be on something with him, with my students, uh, I think a couple of weeks, actually. So I love, yeah. I love Vincent.
1: Uh, we talk all the time. And he said he was going to not use his computer for Friday mornings.
0: Yeah. That's why I can't get in touch with him. Come on. That's why he won't come to my class. No, just kidding. <laughs> and he out came
1: a book of poetry. Yeah. As well as more productivity at work in those times. If you just said, I'm going to write a book of poetry, it wouldn't have the component of decreasing his pollution, but just turning the things off added that element. Other people, when they go hiking, they also bring back garbage that they see on the trail or something like that. Mm -hmm. Is there something you could do to make it specifically also by your standards, improving the environment, not just appreciating it, but actively changing it in a way that that you would call an improvement?
0: Yeah, I mean, this might not be big enough for you, but one thing I'm thinking is, I think I might. Sorry to interrupt.
1: please don't think big or small. Big or small is not it.
0: All right. Well, well, here's one idea I think I can do is, uh, I really, I quite love my dog. I'm a dog person, and I and I walk. I have a. Uh, his name is Butterbean, and I think when we walk around, one thing that we can do is when we meet people, just try to bring out a little bit more in conversation the beauty of the natural environment wherever you are. Because I think actually, you know, you can stop and appreciate things wherever you are. You don't have to be going off to a national park. You can be walking in Clark Park, or you can be on the street and appreciating uh, the many trees that we have, the gardens that we have.
1: By all means do that. But I'm looking for a good component where you, by the act of your hands or your actions, make a difference, a physical
0: difference to the world, not just people. Uh yeah. Well, I mean I can pick stuff up if you want me to like if you, uh, it's not like, for me. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm not sure, you know, I guess I'll resist uh I guess I'll resist um the idea that there's going to be some little thing that I'm going to pick up on and then come back and report. Uh so nothing comes to mind, but I I could think about it. But it does feel a little bit, you know, there's lots of things to worry about and there's lots of things to think about of how one behaves and I don't know if I can think of anything offhand that I'm going to do that's like a, a radical change. I mean, I've, I've spent quite a lot of, like I'm probably Vincent Stanley somewhat similarly inclined to me because he spent a lot of his life too, worrying about these issues and changing behavior and consonance with those issues. So then if you're thinking about another thing to do, it's uh, you've done a lot of stuff already. So um,
1: what you're talking about now is not what I'm talking about. It's, I'm not trying to get you to do something that you don't want to do. Or that you think is a burden. Mm-hmm. There's you talk about this sense of awe. And I thought when you were talking about going hiking with your son or spending more time in the Vatican, that seemed to be something that you wanted to do, not for me. I don't mind persisting and and helping you get to something, but it's to do something that you to build on your the feelings that you described that were seemed quite profound. And I thought you were gonna say, like, If the walking with the sun replaced playing a video game, that would do it. That would fit the criteria I'm talking about because you would also be not using drawing power from the, from the outlet. Right. And that would be a change to the environment. That would be a, an improvement. And I would be curious to hear your response because you might come back and say, actually, my son got in a big fight and I don't know, but maybe you'd come back and say, we connected more deeply. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I don't have that one to do because we've already, we we don't play video games together already. So like that's out. Well, how about this one? I mean, this might, buy, you know, puts a little bit higher time frame on it, but uh, one of the things I was thinking in part because of your uh, leadership really on, which was before its time with respect to airline travel, is I was thinking that if in fact I do move into a more of a affirmative campaign mode, or at least a more. A mode of uh, getting the word out more publicly that I would not would I would commit not to use an airplane, even though Pennsylvania is a pretty big state. (laughs) So, but I think I think it would be worth saying. Well, if I'm doing this, if I'm going to be the green candidate, right? If I'm going to be the choice that is the best choice for the climate, then I'm going to do something that indicates that, which is that I'm not going to take an airplane just to get to Pittsburgh. Right, so I'm not going to uh, even though that's the fastest, easiest way, and probably any other candidate would be doing that. So maybe I can commit to you uh, that I will not do that. Right, that I will take either a train, or I will try a t- or 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 a car or something less, um, and I'll I'll try to bicycle. <laughs> I'll try to do it by bicycle instead of uh, instead of other means. How about that? Would that Would that work? And then you can check back with me if this in fact goes forward as something to see whether I actually did it.
1: Now, it certainly fits the criteria. My gut tells me that if you haven't practiced, I have had people who've come back, like Lorna Davis, a mutual friend of, of uh, if you don't know her, she's also friends with, I think she's, I met Vincent through her or her through Vincent. And she committed to buying no new clothes for a year. And most people don't go for a year. So that was like, a, it sounded to me like a pretty big deal, but like a couple weeks into it, she's contacted me or I contacted her and she was like, this is amazing. This is great. She was growing and learning from it. And then she had a TED talk in the middle of that time. And her first thought was, was, what do I wear? And then she thought, what a relief that I don't have to think about what to wear. She can wear what's comfortable. And she could focus on the talk and expressing herself as opposed to buying something. Among the many changes that happened, because she had other things that actually, she kept sending me all these people who, when she would share what she was doing, they said, oh, I want to do that too. So she had all these like super executives coming, following her. But then I also had Beth Comstock, the former CMO of GE, and she was the uh, she's on the board of Nike. Uh-huh. She was going to go for a week without using any plastic. And when I talked to her a week later, she was like, "That was absolutely impossible. There was no, oh, yeah." It was like I had no idea what I was committing to. She's glad that she did it, but or she's glad that she started it, but she wasn't able to finish it. Or rather, she the finish was she learned from the experience different than what she expected to learn, and so. To go without flying is—it certainly fits my criteria.
0: Well, I think I'm going to do that one. I can also expand. I could just say—I mean—I think I'm going to. Um, I think for one thing, it's been a huge benefit to the climate that we're not flying as much. And so, one thing we need to do is like take advantage of the COVID-enforced grounding of people, and and take advantage of that. I can commit not to fly for a year. I think I'm really going to move toward. I, I liked your example. I think I, one of your. Uh, this was again one of your TED talks. I've kind of moving toward the sailing idea rather than. Uh-huh. I mean, I, I sort of imagine. I know this is not the to do thing, but uh, I imagine us getting a fleet of these sailing. Uh, you know, going back to sailing, like high tech sailing is the way we get to Europe, <laughs> not not taking a plane. You know, the Greta Thunberg um, method, uh, it, except maybe better technology. But I think I can commit to go without flying, including academic conferences or anything like that, for the next year and uh i think i'd like to go beyond that actually i think you know i think your example is a good one of of really cutting down and i think if i win uh, office i think there might be a reason to get on a plane and if you're if you actually are an official of the united states government you might have a conference to go to but i think that i can commit to not going to a conference on an airplane for a year and is that something you've been thinking about before me i'm curious or to tell you the truth, uh, one of the things that I thought, I, did, I have thought about this, uh, one of the things that came up, one of my, one of my colleagues, uh, Robert Gegengack, who is an emeritus professor, he was fond of being in climate meetings where we'd be talking about climate. And he would say, how much fossil fuel have all of the diplomats and academics and scientists used up to get on a plane and go to a conference somewhere? Mm-hmm. And then they talk about climate and how we're going to solve climate. Mm-hmm. And and given, the, given that the world hadn't really gone very far, he said that he thought it was probably pretty close that the amount of fossil fuel used cli- causing climate change was probably close to as much as whatever progress you would make with all these guys flying around the world. I asked someone else about that, and he said, well, I think it might be marginally better. But I think that's an example where you really do have to start to, there's no need to get on... Uh, Conferences, and I have been thinking about this. Um, One of my colleagues has said, and I think there's a movement about this that academics should seriously consider. If you have a big group like the Academy of Management or something like that, the American Association of Law Schools, that you consider having a having a big annual conference every other year. There's no need to have it every year. So at at least start to prune that back. And I'm becoming, uh, I think I am moving toward really being skeptical about going on a plane and for moral reasons and to try to set an example for other people and so this is a new idea that we just discussed that if i would like if this idea of a campaign goes forward and it starts um, and i'm i'm exploring it in the summer we we don't know we have to make a decision in december uh, where it is but in the summer i think i'll commit to not going on a uh, not going on a plane and just, does, does it not getting on a plane does it feel like that would connect with some of the things you talked about before about the trees
1: and the apple and the
0: well, yeah, it's about it's about the climate. It's about it's about nature. It's about preserving that, and climate is a direct threat to that. And right now, we do not have a climate-friendly way to take airplanes. It's fossil fuel-based, and it's uh, you. You know, I think the I think you know the numbers better than I do. But I have this has been a concern because I've looked at my own carbon footprint. And I, uh, we do a lot of great things. We, you know, source food pretty well. We, We reduce our, we compost, we use solar power on our house. We, you know, do other good things. And then if I take a couple business class trips somewhere in the world, it blows out everything else, right? The amount of fuel that you use for an international trip, it doesn't have to be business class, is so huge that if you take two or three of those, Everything else you do that you think you're being good with respect to climate, you pretty much wipe it out. So it is a significant issue. And I'm not saying everybody should never take an take a, a airplane trip, but we really, if we could radically reduce the numbers down to like 90% of what we're doing now, it would be a significant wedge out of the climate problem. So yeah, I'm, I'm passionate about that. Okay. So
1: then I look forward to hearing how things go.
0: Okay, when do you want to check in with me?
1: Yeah, I was, I was just going to ask that. The, the uh, by the way, I was want to make sure it's a smart goal, so it's specific. You're saying one year no flying, measurable. It's easy to measure if you got on a plane or not. Yeah, and time bound. So, and if you think it's realistic, then then that would do it.
0: Yeah, let's do it. I'm trying to think of exceptions. Like, yeah, my my. Uh, you know, I might have gotten on a plane to go see my niece get married and, in Seattle, but under the current circumstances, I'm not doing that. So. I'm trying to think of any emergency. I can't think of an emergency, so let's go for it. Let's go for one year, no flying.
1: Okay, and yeah, one of the things I point out to people is that there's two things that generally gum up the works. And these aren't reasons not to do it, but it's just to prepare that, and you can't prepare for everything. But the two things are family and or other people and travel. Those are what I say to most people because usually it's like someone, someone might say, I'm going to go without meat for a month. And yeah. if they visit their mom and their mom is like, Hey, I made your favorite. It's that, you know, that meatloaf that you love so much. Then you're in this position of like, okay, I don't want to eat the meat, but I love my mom. And now I don't know what the answer is. And I, and you won't know, things can come up that you can't predict. The one thing I know that doesn't work is like, sometimes someone will say, well, you know, just as once I'll eat the, I'll have the, I'll have the meatloaf, but otherwise I won't. And, and other people say, no, I, I'll draw a hard line. What doesn't work is to say, Oh, I failed here. I give up. Yeah, I agree. So I don't know what the solution will be. Maybe you will have, you know, some family issue that requires that you feel requires you to travel, and maybe you'll solve it by saying, you know, even that I'm not going to do it. Or maybe you'll say I'll make an exception for this. Whatever it is, something will come up that you can't possibly predict, and yeah. probably values will challenge each other, and you'll have to figure it out. Yeah. And that's what I really want to bring to the listeners: is leaders, who you know, people running for office or at least considering it you know, what do they do? It's not, this isn't Disney. This isn't like, I can tell you this, it's not going to be
0: easy. It's not going to be like a year from now. You're gonna be like done. Yeah. It was no problem. Yeah. You're right. I mean, there's going to be some, the tough one will be like, you have to fly to Pittsburgh for X and like, cause it'd be so easy to fly to Pittsburgh and I won't fly to Pittsburgh. So we'll see. That'll be the tough one.
1: Yeah. I mean, in my first year of not flying, I think the listeners know I'm from Philadelphia and yeah, so when you're talking about abolition in the United States, I was thinking of like how big the Quakers were and how big Philadelphia Oh, yeah, sure.
0: Yeah, we're the first state to have an abolition society, I think. And uh,
1: my uncle, who lives in Pittsburgh, died that year. And so I had to figure that out. And I had yep. carpooling with my sister, who was going to fly. So two of us didn't fly. We both drove. But it was actually... I, the net result was more time with my family, in particular my sister. Yeah, yeah that's a nice thing. Mm-hmm. And I could have easily... Just said, all right, I'll fly out. And now all the listeners are saying, Yeah, but my uncle doesn't live a state away. My uncle, lives. okay, I'm not solving everyone's problems. I'm just sharing one experience that worked out contrary to my expectations when I stuck with it. Yeah. And so we could talk in a year, and I hope to talk in a year. When people have okay. long ones, I often ask them, how long do you think it'll have to go before you've you have something meaningful to talk about? So it might be that you really can't say anything before a year. But if you typically would fly on a quarterly scale, or, you know, it might be that you have a conference coming up that you're going to do something about, and then it could be earlier. So when do you think you could have something
0: meaningful to share that it wasn't just, you know, a week past? Well, we we can, uh, I think it would be helpful to, we could check in at the end, like in May. Because in May, we can either, I can either tell you, oh, yeah, we looked at that idea of a campaign and we're not doing that. So I am still sticking to the air, the air travel thing. Or it could be, uh, well, well, it looks like we're looking, we're moving forward and it's going to be an active summer. And here's the plan that will uh, not include air travel. And that would be a good checkpoint for me, too, to remind myself kind of a checking, okay, let's look in. Is this feasible? You know What am I going to do? So maybe that would be a good time to check in is sometime in May. Okay. So after we,
1: after we stop recording, we'll get at the calendars and put something tentative for May. Okay. And it also just occurred to me, I was telling you things to look out for, but I also think there might be something to look forward to that, you know, candidates in New York have been contacting me as well for sustainability leadership advice. And I believe that there is a huge opportunity for something that doesn't exist. Of someone who is actually uh, an American who is actually living by the values that they espouse for others, mm-hmm. and I think the genuineness and authenticity there is a tremendous winning opportunity. Now, you will get attacked. I predict that anyone who who adopts this position or strategy will get attacked. Oh yeah, but you're also doing this. You're also doing that. But I'll get attacked for lots of stuff. <laughs> I think that there's a potential for a serious, winning, attractive. To be doing, you know, Martin Luther King could not say, we got to go to jail here. Not me. You have to go to jail, but not me. Yeah. Or Mandela saying, you know, you guys got to do this stuff, but I'm just going to be sitting in the back and watch. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. It's like Patton was in there and his men loved him for it. Yep. And so I think that there's something there that's not just like, I'm kind of doing this, but I'm all in or that I'm, you know, I really believe this and it's going to be hard for me. Yeah. Although I think after a while it becomes not hard, it becomes easier.
0: You know, there's another example, actually, that one of my uh, MBA students raised, which is uh, there's an issue with campaigns about how much they pay their campaign staff. So like if you're going around saying minimum wage, $15 an hour, and then you have a bunch of people who are doing a lot of work for you, you're actually not paying them as $15 an hour. That's kind of, uh, one would say that Looks a little hypocritical, right? But that's actually it's very common, apparently, uh, according to my, my student who seems to know about it. So I think you're right about the genuineness and, and thank you. That's a, I think that's a helpful suggestion. And you know the other thing is, you know people forget most people aren't flying around. A lot of people who are citizens of the state of Pennsylvania and everywhere else in the United States are not getting on airplanes all the time. You know, most people are not like they're basically they they live in their towns and they live in their cities or their farm uh, areas and they are not getting on planes all the time. So I think um, this is a bad habit that a particular class uh, of, of people in the society have. And I have to say it probably in, it includes a lot of academics who are jumping on planes all the time and you really don't need to anymore. Yeah. So I'm very much looking
1: forward to hearing I think I could see you coming back and being like, it went out the window after the first month. I can see you coming back and saying, you nah. won the election for me. I can see you coming back and saying, I've changed as a person. I can see, I'm really curious to see what happens. So many people look at flying as like, won't touch it with a 10 foot pole. Yeah. And I could see many, many possibilities. I'm curious what, what will come back.
0: Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it won't happen in, uh, in the, in the first iteration, but I can imagine what if you had, uh, A U.S. senator actually saying, let's go to Europe like Greta Thunberg went went to Europe. And who knows if you had, you know, going back to our our conversation about how polarized things, could you imagine if uh, a bipartisan contingent of Congress got onto a, you know, high tech solar wind powered boat? and went to Europe for the conference, they'd be forced to talk about stuff. <laughs> they, you know, they, rather than just, uh, you know, they'd, be, they'd be forced to get to know each other, find out uh, what their family lives were like and their friendships. And, you know, you might have a better world if you slow it down a little bit.
1: When I think of, of sailing, replacing things, I think more of like a family vacation of, of you could fly to Europe. Just Yeah. I, I was associated sailing with like the Kennedys and rich people until I realized like everyone, the coasts, most people live near a coast in the entire world and people have been sailing for 10,000 years or something close to that 7,000 years. Yeah. And when I get on a sailboat, so I took lessons here and I've barely, I've been in this long island sound and I've been in um, New York Harbor, but just getting in the Harbor, I'm maybe two or three miles from home. It's a whole other world. I mean, time changes, everything changes.
0: I have good experiences from sailing as well. One of my uncles was a big, he would race uh, on Lake Erie. And uh, was known for doing that. He was actually a World War II veteran. And I think in, 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 on planes, it was interesting. He did, he did so many missions, uh, bombing mis- missions over Nazi Germany and World War II. When he got back, he never got on a plane again. I think there was one family-oriented exception. But he just, he, he just thought, I've used up whatever luck I have in the air because I didn't get shot down. So many, so many of his, his, uh, his friends and, and fellow airmen got killed. And he just, uh, and, but he mm-hmm. loved sailing. So, I don't, yeah, I have, a, I have a vision of that. Like, think about, uh, I think the cruise industry, let's forget about that. That just seems like an incredibly wasteful industry to me. But what if you had someone build uh, solar-powered big ships like that? It wouldn't be all this luxury and ballrooms and all this other non-natural-facing issues. But I could imagine uh, an industry. Even in Philadelphia, Philadelphia is a port. Like we have, you know, people used to take ships all the time, right? That was the way to yeah. get to Europe. So why not bring and, that back?
1: Or just a nice vacation, a nice time away. And yeah, well, we've been on for a long time.
0: I, been a, Yeah, I need to get to oh another call also, but thanks yeah, for... I just realized I have to get yeah. on another call. <laughs> I've really enjoyed oh, the okay, conversation. Good. Well, but good timing. Yeah, it was really good. It went longer than we expected, but I think that was... Uh, owing to the quality of this, the depth of it. I really appreciate you reaching out, Josh, and and thank you for this opportunity.
1: Thank you. And uh, we'll schedule something for May. And if something comes up between now and then, then please let me know. Like some big decision comes up and it's something to share. I'll take you earlier too. Okay. Thank you. we Will do. Thank you. Business school sounds different than when I was there almost, well, that was almost 20 years ago. I still see them, the MBA students, that is, Still focusing more on efficiency and technology than changing values and leadership, which is what I consider the most important thing to do now. But I hope they get what experience has shown me is most important that is, values and leadership, which business school teaches, although not as well as I do. I love to see him taking on a personal challenge enthusiastically. Maybe his being on this podcast will make him one of the first politicians to act in stewardship and enjoy it. Not just you have to do it, but we get to do it. While living near Washington, D.C., will make it easier for him than someone in a Western state to avoid flying, it doesn't change that he's acting. He will learn from the experience. He'll lead others with what he learns. And we all have things that we care about that are easy for us to start with. So if you think it was easy for him, do something easy for you. Anyway, we'll hear how he does next time, by which point he may be running in the race, and we'll see how avoiding flying is helping him. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodek.com/donate. Again, that's joshuaspodek.com/donate.